extremely pleased uh, to present to you uh, what I hope will be only the first part of a conversation with Mohamed Salami. Um, I actually met Mo years and years and years ago just by chance uh, in Vancouver. He's an art critic as well, a curator, a writer, um, very engaged in politics, very engaged in philosophy, and I wanted to get him on Night Roll for a long time, and I knew it would be fun and fascinating, and it certainly didn't disappoint. Um, we actually talked for about an hour and a half, but unfortunately, um, a little more than halfway through, we had some technical issues, followed by a technical snafu, so we ended up uh, not being able to use the last bit, so we're going to continue the conversation in the coming weeks. Um, so for this episode, we mostly talked about uh, the situation in Afghanistan, the greater kind of political meaning behind it, um, and it was a really fascinating discussion. So I really highly recommend checking out Mo and his work. You can Google the new Center for Research and Practice, which is his, uh, his, main, uh, his main focus right now. Just a quick reminder, you can follow us at PodRule on Twitter. Um, we're also on Patreon on Patreon at patreon.com slash nightrule. Uh, there'll be some new bonus stuff going up for the patrons soon. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of fun. There's a lot of great stuff here. So without any further ado, welcome to Night Rule.
You're traveling through another dimension. This dimension as vast as our ignorance and as timeless as our arrogance. It is the middle ground between Facebook post and thought, between light and superstition, and it lies between the pit of our fears and the summit of our knowledge. It is an area we call night rule. My name is Isaac. I'm extremely pleased to be joined by an old friend of mine, uh, Mo. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the audience for those of you that don't know you, Mo? I have to introduce myself. Oh my God. I, I'm not a very good, I'm not very good at that, but like just search my name and you're going to read a whole bunch of stuff about me and you find out who I am. I think maybe that's the best way to sort of like introduce myself. Just Google me. Mohammed Salami. Yeah. I'm what I do at the moment. I am the sole or the only organizer of the new Center for Research and Practice. It's a platform for research into critical philosophy and contemporary art, things that have to do with ideas. A place I sort of envisioned and started with two of my dear friends, Tony Yannick and Jaden Adams in 2014 as an online educational platform for investigating a series of new proposition ideas that were coming around that time, particularly post-economic crash 2009, certain developments in continental philosophy, but also political theory that led to, after several, after several conferences and a series of essays published, came about to be known as the sort of like the new materialist, the object-oriented ontology and object-oriented philosophy and speculative realism and things that came out of that which was sort of like happening between 2006, 2007, and 2011, 2012, 13, where things became more clear. And we found ourselves in the middle of that sort of like debate that was going on in philosophy and in social theory around where should we go from where we are. So yeah, so that's where, it, that's where the new center all started. And I really have dedicated myself in the last eight years to this project. This is my main project. I sort of run it as my studio practice as an artist. So my approach to working during those years that I work with Tony and with Jaden, and now that I do it alone, it's always like kind of like an artwork of mine, but it's actually like thinking about what kind of scholars and what kind of people need to be putting their ideas out and programming them and allowing them to develop seminars and include them in our um, semi-annual programs that we announce so yeah, so these are like yeah. graduate level seminars produced and put online by the professors and the students who participate live in these seminars. These are just like university seminars at the graduate level, except the only difference is they get recorded. So is all the, all, all the reading materials, all the stuff related to the seminars are also available online. So you either are a student participating in seminars or you later watch all the recorded videos because every seminar from our inception has been properly archived and recorded and is available for people to watch so we have these so what do i do it's like a school it's a platform for research but it's also like a content development company we mm. produce philosophy videos we're like netflix of philosophy right right in a particular niche of philosophy the type of like the type of like arguments that came at a particular time addressing certain issues but because it was always entangled with the question of the cybernetics and it was always entangled with certain things that happened in the in the early 90s in warwick with nick land and the whole discussions about acceleration it kind of had this sexy bent to it 
that really like um, started to resonate in the English speaking world, places like London, out of Goldsmith University, Canada, were actually the writers of the Accelerate Manifesto. One of the, one of the co-authors, uh, Nick Cernicek, uh, is Canadian. You have, um, yeah, but it coalesced around like a s- certain writers and people which ended up being my friends and my network, which I work with. And we kind of like created this research platform. And yeah, it, 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 so that's what I do. That's, that's what my, uh, most of my focus is on. But beside that, I'm just like, an, I'm an artist because that's part of my studio practice. So that's really like an introduction. And the rest of it, just Google me and then you, you read about it. So that's sure. good for right? For sure. No, that's, no, 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 that's, no, that's, that's amazing. Honestly, I'm so glad that, cause I just knew when I, when I invited you on, it was just like, how the fuck do I introduce Mo? Like, I'm not going to be able to introduce this guy. Like I usually try and write a nice flowery introduction for people, but like, I, I was like, I just have to try and get Mo to introduce himself. Cause there's no way I could do uh, it justice. So that was fantastic. Um, you know, I think uh, starting off, I mean, just in terms of the, the situation of the day, um, I really feel as though, Okay, I'll tell you. Let's go situation ahead. Of the day with this. Please, please. The situation of the day for me began sometime in early March. In early March, I was invited to Clubhouse, and I quickly like got my because like I knew what Clubhouse was six months earlier. I knew about it as a platform created by like rich people for rich people, so like a rich people social network. That it was also like a new way of communicating because it was sound based. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like a like an audio Facebook of sort of like rich entrepreneur, like influencer type kind of people. Mm. But then it became what is now known as Clubhouse. It kind of, the, the origin of it was stories I read in New York Times and Guardian about this like ex, this exclusive social media, sound-based social media. And then came my own like invitation. Somebody invited me. I think my, my friend, artist, colleague, friend, assistant, Castro sent an uh, invite for me and I, took the invite and I entered the clubhouse. And because I, I'm Iranian and I speak Persian, I kind of started getting connected back to uh, the world of Iran. This world of Iran is something that I don't know how many other Iranians also feel, feel it the way I do. So like ever since I left Iran in, in 1988, every 10 years is I have this like return, intense return to Iranian affairs and politics and Middle East stuff. And then I get like so like frustrated with it and bored with it and I just leave it. And then 10 years later, I'm back. It's like <laughs> the, the time machine. And then you're back 10 years later. So, okay, what's up? And then you get super deep into it again and you have to update yourself, all the stuff you've missed and all the stuff that you didn't know. Oh my God. It's like, I can imagine. It's totally a different timeline. It's like totally, it's like, it's like, it's like sci fi material. You have to like take time out of your normal life in whatever the crap you were putting your mind to and then put it into that world, like virtually through internet and reading and clicking and talking to people. And then you get back into that world and then so march this year and the introduction of clubhouse was my return to that world mm. so it's been a return to me for me it's been a return and uh yeah so this is how it all started but it all coincided with two important two important things that took place or three important things that took place uh we we saw the election of biden mm-hmm. but that was sort of like precursor because the, in terms of the middle east what, what what really took place was the change of administration in tehran and this fundamental shift from even a sort of pretense to some kind of competition and democracy to like a president and a government that is completely ordered 
top to bottom by the Supreme Leader. He picked the candidate. Nobody could run, not even the fake mockery of the previous elections could be maintained. And sort of like a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of rhetorics that basically from the time of the election of Khatami in the mid 90s has sort of like been the obsession of people who want to see change in Iran in a lot of that time, including myself. I've been there myself in some past time, hoping that something will be coming out of the this reformist movement that was happening from the time of the Khatami's presidency in the mid-90s. That whole project of reform kind of came to a crushing end with the appointment of Mr. Raisi as the president of Iran. So this is happening at the same time that nuclear negotiations with Iran, which were, op- which were opened right after Biden came to power with the previous Iranian government, this reformist government that was in power for the last eight years, the reformist government of Mr. Rouhani, and the capitulation to Taliban. It's sort of like this, this real sense of despair for us right now. It seems that despite all of its bad intentions from the get-go, there was something, something redeemable, very little, like, like 1% of the whole deal. Like if the whole deal was 100%, 1% of the whole deal which was redeemable in the post 9-11 project was the fact that all of a sudden Western America had decided to take up the flag of combating Islamic fundamentalism. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a paradigm that began with, with the post 9-11, right? So, so this time of, and in its past reincarnation, you have the Iranian revolution in 1979. So, you have the 1979 Iranian Revolution, and which is basically the beginning of the time in which really America confronts Islamic extremism. It's completely unrelated to the type of type of stuff that it, it itself was launching right across in the in the Afghanistan, which now is catching up with. But basically, the, for us Iranians, there was something redeemable about about the, the intention of the West to combat Islamic fundamentalism we've been we've been subject to it and victims of it since the iranian revolution of 1979 so this moment that we you asked we're in is this moment and like finally west is throwing the flag on the ground and saying like yeah i give up i they won i mean taliban won the war i mean we have to accept that Mm-hmm. Taliban won this 20-year war over like the values of the West, or the values of the West universal, and they're enforceable militarily. You know, in the middle of this Af- Afghan occupation, there was a documental exhibition in Kabul or in Afghanistan near Kabul. Mm. You know, the military forces secured a space, so the curator of the documental exhibition was able to implement as part of her documental exhibition in Castle, Germany in 2012, if I'm not wrong, uh, or 2013. No, wait. 12 or 13, she managed to pull a show under military protection in Kabul, right? So, so you can you can you can think of this this no this noble redeemable thing that came out of America wanting to fight Islamic fundamentalism. Funny enough, this experiment, this progressive experiment, took place in the same place that the, another progressive experiment before that had just sort of like America had helped to bring to an end, which was a communist progressive. So you have this crazy, crazy, absolutely crazy, like place. It's like, it's like a laboratory of America, a laboratory of superpowers. Mm. You have like Afghanistan where 
Russia experiments with like hyper modernizing a very traditional Muslim society into mm. a secular utopian as much as possible. So and then like, never um, more with never with more than like 30% popular support. Like the, the communists, sure, they had they had a base, but they weren't they weren't that popular. Yeah, but the program was centralized and from the top yeah. to bottom, who cares if people didn't like it? It was dictatorship anyways. I mean it was and, it was yeah I'm sure there was a lot of industrialization. So was the American and stuff. One. But so is the American one that followed it with with the with the with the exception of the period when Taliban was in was in rule mm, in the nineties. So, yeah. So then yeah. So so then the nineties was skipped in civil war, and then America came, and then another experiment began. This one in a type of uh, nation building in a form of like a democracy with human rights and women rights. So much emphasis on NGOs yeah. and and. So like a, a real social transformation of Afghanistan, of course it was forced and of course it was a hyper uh, accelerated. And of course at times it was phony, but nevertheless, a generation of people were, were like raised under this new set of far better rules, even though they were like upheld with like military support, but in urban centers, especially a lot of hopes and dreams were created for a generation of people that are just like terrified of what's happening right now. So this is really, and then in Iran, in, in a way, there's been like more than 20 years of the hope for reform. It's been 25 years of actually, the life of the reform movement in Iran is 25 years. So it's really interesting that like the, the, the life of the reform movement in Iran almost coincides with the life of this period of hope and regeneration in Afghanistani society because of that came out of as a collateral, as a positive collaterals of the Afghan occupation. So it's all coming to an end. In I mean, Iran, a, you have, yeah. In Iran, you have Raisi coming to power, and in Afghanistan, you have Taliban coming to power. So it's really like a dark and devastating moment for us Iranians and Afghanistani people at the same time. I think the the metaphor of an experiment is a really interesting one because yeah, it is. It, it, Afghanistan has been been kind of the laboratory for empires, and it's interesting because, I mean, obviously the propaganda of of humanitarian interventionism was part of the formula, but also the things you're talking about, actual NGO work, actual, actual you know, better conditions on the ground, just in general. Um, it's, it's as though, you know, so it's much- as though the, the preconditions going into the experiment, one of them was that, like you say, we, the West gave a shit about fighting Islamic fundamentalism and, 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 and human rights and stuff like that. But as the, the callousness and the bungling of this pullout shows, I think, I think you're right. You're really onto something in terms of the capitulation and laying the flag down. It's the, the people running the experiment have said, oh, you know, one of our, one of our theses, one of our preconditions was that we gave a shit about human rights and, and lives. And we've just decided we don't give a shit about that anymore. We're just going to let these people get crushed to death in the fucking outside the airport you know, you know this is a this is a leftist humanist position let's just look at it from the position of the of the of the of the taxpaying colonizer you know you know this is like this is this is very similar to what america did to iran in 40 years ago when when the revolution took place what happened then was after 40 years of usa investing its resources in taxpayers money in, in, in iran of course, of course, it was lucrative for, for American companies, but American American people through American government invested in Iranian society through many, many layers of like industrialization, culture, 40 years of Iranians were, were raised and got used to a culture out of that, out of that time, mm-hmm. only for America to kind of freak out and sort of like irresponsibly throw the kids at Ayatollah Khomeini and say, here, take over. Sorry, we're not interested anymore. And leave us. And 40 years later, we're still struggling to to overthrow this 
monstrosity that was sort of like forced upon us out of that irresponsible irresponsible leaving of a project you know like a, a colonial project even so now we see the repeat of that in afghanistan after 20 years of investing into this it's like america had 40 years to to plan its exit from iran america had 20 years to exit its to plan its exit from 20 years right? yeah 20 had years 20 years to plan this damn goddamn exit and this is how they well did. this is what this I'm, is what but what, what, what this is what me, you're talking about yeah, but like it's it's as though the the politics of cruelty have really reasserted themselves i mean i'm reading that that a lot of the reason why there were apparently government officials in the trump administration that wanted to start getting people the fuck out because obviously they felt they had a moral uh responsibility and also it was a political necessity you could argue in many ways but the fucking stephen millers and white supremacists in the administration were pushing back and and quashing that and making it impossible for them to do it so i mean we're really you can see it as just like this disgusting uh you know, hyper manifestation of the politics of cruelty and the identity, the, like the identity of cruelty. I feel as yeah, though, but you know, but the, but the fact is actually it didn't end up being Trump doing the horrible things. It's it's now Biden who's doing just the worst thing that the Miller was supposed to do. That's actually what's the tragedy here, mm. that we're not getting anything better than what Miller and Trump were going to well, This offer. is the legacy. This is the political legacy that li it's living on. More. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's the like we see the echo of it in the current administration. This is how the dynamics of the, of American foreign policy work, you know, and especially when you consider like generationally, like Biden is just of an attitude that's very different, and it's it's actually as easy for him to adopt this uh, this kind uh, of neo-fascist cruelty because he's an old school liberal imperialist, basically. You know, it's not that they're, but, they're but, actually you know, pretty things compatible. Things are so bad. Things are so bad that things are so bad that Tony Blair just like attacked <laughs> Biden. <laughs> When Tony, Tony Blair is attacking you, <laughs> Tony Blair is like Tony Blair is like this was very irresponsible. Let's, look how bad it is. So it's actually like a crack in the old. Like uh, it's a crack in the old. I mean, yeah, but Biden is Biden is showing that he's not a neocon, but it doesn't mean that he's the effect of his foreign policy is going to be anything better than a neocon foreign policy just yeah. because he's not a neocon. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just because and he's not a neocon on Afghanistan doesn't mean he's like the rest of it, you know? Well, you know, he's just, he's, he's, yeah, it's, it's really bizarre to me how, how horrible the situation really is. It's like, but, but man, let's, let's just like pull back and, 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 and really understand the, the significance of it. So 20 years ago, after like, after not really wanting to directly address it since the Iranian revolution, in 2001, because of the 9-11 attack, Amer West, led by America, decided to take on Islamic terrorism as its number one enemy. We all know that. We all know that history of the whole like clash of civilization, post 9-11 world. We, you grew up in it. In fact, that's when we met and became friends yeah, was during that period, true. right? Yeah. So we have that. We have that. And this whole period is coming to an end now. Mm. And, but what does it mean? Does that mean that uh, West has finally accepted to basically allow a, a radical political Islam to like rule over certain geographies as long as it doesn't become a place to create a risk threat for the West and produce refugees. Mm. Is this really like what we've reached? Is, well, is yeah, this, I, I, this I, I, era I, I, that I, Biden trying to enforce? Or mm. is this just like the end of a series of wars and a beginning of a new series of wars? And then if it is the beginning of new series of wars, the new series of wars, I bet you, if the answer is new series of wars, these new series of wars are basically the Muslim civil wars, which with the cost of it being passed on to the Muslim countries themselves. 
So imagine in the, in the large Muslim world of the large Muslim world from Indonesia and Malaysia over there all the way here to Turkey. Like they're gonna all be made into Yemen, you think, in some in some version? Yeah, you're gonna see you're gonna see all of that turn into like a whole zone of like like forest fires. But instead of forest fire, is like a moderate Muslim state or state formations fighting fundamentalists. Yeah, and then the only the and, only difference being that you would have uh, instead of firefighters going to fight the fire, you would have things like drones and mercenaries with fucking flamethrowers on it on them just flying out there to like <laughs> add to the fucking flames, right? I mean, because it won't be, as long as they've learned, I think they've learned the lesson that direct military involvement is much less preferable to indirect involvement, you know? No, absolutely. Like, and no, but it's like, it's like, it's like very much like it, it would just enter the, enter the, enter the, enter the technology of so like geopolitical exchanges. It's just another, the violent component of, Fully managed violent component of a global political order, you know, mm. and it's just ongoing. It's just like 1984, like seriously. It's just, it's just, we never thought that we actually, with, with political Islam, is going to give us the substance for a kind of 1984, 1984-ish like forever wars. Mm, mm, but mm. because, because, or, or we go for the, for the p- positive one, right? Yeah, actually like, like they're capitulating to, to Islamic fundamentalism and saying like, okay, you guys rule your, you guys, you guys go and oppress your own people as long as you don't create terrorist threats for us mm. we will not as long as you don't threaten our national security we don't give two shits about what you do with your women and communities right really so we'll see i don't know we're we're too it's too close to, it's too close to call right it's just we just have to wait a little bit and see where this was everybody just watching afghanistan and it's not going in the right direction <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible. It's like I, I'd never imagined that, you know, I, I expected to just kind of be happy and relieved for the war and occupation to end. But it's been such a fucking it's like Schindler's List on fucking social media. Like they're ho- they're literally spraying the people outside the airport with hoses because they're dehydrated and, you know, suffering. You know, it's just like I just did not expect it to be this cruel, you know. I mean, is there any hope you think that perhaps like as I mean, even if the U.S. kind of as it retreats into, you know, uh, middle power status amongst many powers over the next century, even if it is cruel as as it retreats. It's too early to even think that we don't know. You think so? It just we're we're right, you know. It's it's like in those films. It's the moment where like the car is just hanging on the cliff, and like you're not sure if like the car is gonna go down, down to, like, <laughs> and the car is going like ah, ah, right. Okay. And okay. In it. Fair you know, enough. There's like there's so <laughs> many there's so many of these TV series, Netflix TV series that have scenes like that mm. where like a car is hanging from a cliff. How many yeah. Netflix series have you watched during the pandemic? Oh, quite a few. Yeah, I've uh, I've recommended a bunch to people. Like I, I got into a couple of like Japanese ones Midnight Diner it's a very like uh Chekhovian kind of uh simple one it's based on a manga but um yeah I've, I've mostly just been trying I, I'm always trying to catch up I watched Witness for the Prosecution for the first time this like old Billy Wilder movie from 1957 like last night I'm so glad I did because the night before because I'm planning on doing an episode on Nicolas Cage I, I I'd never seen Leaving Las Vegas so I watched Leaving Las Vegas which to be honest, his performance, as well as Elizabeth Shue's performance, they're, they're both fucking amazing. But that movie is like so like weird and like kind of shitty. And it's like so pornographic. Like the first 20 minutes is like a porn film. You're like watching porn. You're like, oh, I thought I was just, I thought this was just a movie. I guess the guy that made this was like extremely horny. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel as though, 
I mean, when you look at the kind of, uh, you take American foreign policy um, in the Middle East and you compare it to something like uh, the Chinese model of foreign policy, which is, you know, kind of like a, you could argue a form of economic imperialism, but it's much more of like a soft power extension. I mean, the fucking Asian infrastructure investment bank has only been around since 2014 and they're already involved in all kinds of stuff also with, with tremendous social uh, dimensions as well. When you look at things like building up the social state in India, or uh, I think they have all, all kinds of, there's, they're starting to put like gender uh, equality and whatnot into the, into the proposals for their policies because it, that has kind of an economic dimension. I mean, is it possible that that a kind of multipolar world that is that we imagine, hopefully, uh, could see, could make inroads against things like Islamic fundamentalism in the long term? You're muted. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, sure. I mean, let's hope this is terrible, the world we're in. Even what you're saying is terrible, but it's the best option. It's like, it's the best option. Let's hope that, that the, pull out of, the pulling out of Afghanistan represents all that, all that you just said. Let's just mm, hope that. Mm, okay. I'll be so happy to see it. <laughs> I hope so. With yeah. all of its shortcomings and with all of its own in, in, new inequalities that it might introduce to the mm-hmm. whole global system, right? Let's just hope that because that still seems to be the best option out of this. But never forget, uh, this could actually become the scene of another war, another world war. It just it could be it could be just the beginning of a new set of conflicts. Oh, I mean, there's that there's means- no there's no way to rule out the possibility of of a of a conflict between China and the U.S. I mean, it's like the no, it's, it's low mean. probability, no. but it, it's possible, right? What I mean is like the whole the whole political Islam becomes again mm. the issue that would spark that because it all has to do with Uyghurs, Muslims at the border, China and and Afghanistan, and the kind of like. The kind of dynamics that come that that will come out of okay, if America is not going to fight, if America and the West are not going to fight Islamic fundamentalism globally, who will be fighting Islam globe? India is going to fight it. India is already fighting it mm. because India fights Muslims in India and India fi- uh, fights Pakistan. And okay, so who funds who funds Muslim fundamentalism? Well, Muslim fund- fundamentalism was traditionally funded by Saudi Arabia uh, and also Turkey got into it, the more Islamists came to power in Turkey, the more Turkey started to have its own type of fundamentalists around. Mm-hmm. And then this is at the same time that the Qatar's influence grows, especially because of his cultural investment in projects like Al Jazeera. And Qatar mm-hmm. becomes a big player in, in this whole thing. And you have Qatar and Turkey from one end supporting Arab Springs, supporting a Muslim Brotherhood coming to power in Egypt, and then from the other end, the other old supporters of Islamic fundamentalism are Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates and Kuwait and places like that who are freaking out about Arab Spring and they're freaking out about Muslim Brotherhood coming to power in Egypt. And that's the coalition that was supposed to like quickly bring down Assad in 2010, 11, mm-hmm. 11, 12, but it didn't. And right at the time of a coup in Egypt, it was clear that this coalition was over. And right after the time of the coup of Egypt and right, it would be coincided with the exact same time that they tried to drag Obama to bomb Syria and it didn't happen because Putin got involved and he promised to go and get all the chemical weapons of Syria and destroy it and all that. That was like, you remember that episode. I'm oh, sure yeah. you must yeah, remember Yeah, for sure, it. for sure. Yeah. It was in the summer of 2013. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's when that coalition fell apart. You know, the coalition that was supposed to sort of like bring the, like the surge of Islamism. And... After that, it was clear that Assad will win the civil war in, in Assad and Iran will win the civil war in uh, Syria. And then it was clear for America 
that, yeah, that it had made a big mistake that it signed a nuclear deal with Iran because they signed a nuclear deal with Iran, hoping that then they would defeat Iran in Syria by overthrowing Assad and then kind of begin to like impose new sets of new sets of demands on Iran after they, after Iran loses. If Iran lost Syria, Iran would, would lose Lebanon immediately because Syria is the bridge, Iran's bridge to Lebanon. Mm. So, and that didn't happen. And then, and then Trump was really smart in terms of America's national interest. He said, Iranians can't have their cake and eat it. They, did, they, they, they can win in Syria and keep the nuclear deal. Was very realist of Trump to say, no, the whole nuclear deal was to defeat Iran in Syria wasn't to so that he canceled it and it's still canceled and they, ha- they haven't been able to but this is also the other thing if if really america were turning away from this the old type of foreign policy it should also come to peace with the with the, with, the, with the fundamentalist iran and just just come to an agreement that iran does not threaten its its national security or its interest in the region and allow the iranian government to exist so then we come out of this all this like insanity and go towards that the scenario that you were talking a multipolar, multipolar world, right? But we don't know. We'll see. It's, it's, it's a cliffhanger. I think, um, you know, looking at this imagineered uh, future that's like probably science fiction in my mind, I mean, I, 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 I would suspect that a major component that would really make the whole thing work would be just, you know, quite obviously a, uh, a greater cultural appreciation, a better consideration, better general knowledge of uh, different people's histories. I mean, there's been times, there's been times in history where uh, societies in the West have gone through uh, certain, they call them manias, you know, there was uh, Viking mania, there was you know, classical mania. I mean, it seems to me that if nothing else, people in the in media, people involved in, in culture and politics, if we could engage in like, you know, let's try and replace Islamophobia with Islamania and actually learn about the history and the culture of these places, the people that live there, their current political situation, our own government's involvement and, you know, malfeasance and whatnot. Because ultimately like that's that's one of the that that's how we kind of pave the path forward i think um on like a cultural level because the culture is still very much still um, but for us, poison man, poisoned for by the us, well of propaganda you know for us we we always thought we always thought that islamic fundamentalism has to be fought locally by local by local progressives not by american bombs and sure. not by humanitarian like intervention right well, and not, yes, and not by a, overthrowing governments of people, you know, like we, we hate our own government. So we think, oh, we should just go into another country, just destroy an entire nation. Whereas people are just like, you know, we liked having power and running water. So maybe don't come in and just destroy our entire nation, try and replace it with something I else. Know. Man, if Listen, trust me, if there was a cohesive, cohesive unitary voice from the Iranian people that I knew is genuinely from the Iranian people, that it was generated out of like discussion and and readiness to take over and having a plan to implement right and the only requirement of it was like for america to bomb iran i would sign up for that bombing but all <laughs> the other parts have to be in place right before yeah. i do that you know what i mean and, and right. iranian people are not requesting it yet it has to actually be like all the plans have to be in place and the only thing missing is is american bombs that mm. then I, I would say yeah, we, we'll, we'll send a request we'll send a request and come and bomb them for us but it's not the time yet we're yeah. not there yet if you bomb uh, these guys something works than this will come right send, send a tweet to the cia at them on twitter something worse than this will, will will take its place you know like this is like so clear in oh every, yeah like every, these scenarios right look at look at libya i mean you go from like a, a madman but you know 
you know, but to man, it's, it's like not a even politics. failed state. It's not even politics. It's just it's just cybernetics. It's system design. It's like it's like system design. It's like engineering. You ask any engineer, they tell you that, and they know that. They know it from the from a perspective of engineering. What they're doing is is just like destruction. But uh, they have economic goals. Their goal is not system perfection. Their goal is maximizing profits. If their goal was perfecting the international order, man, that's not what they would do because because the, the proper technology of international order. That's not how. If if its goal was to preserve itself and expand itself, that's not what it do to itself. Was objective is is capital accumulations and 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 so whatever it takes towards that okay then we're gonna we're gonna like do this and that over here with this whereas we could totally be doing something else with it I mean we're on the same same page I think yeah I totally agree yeah, I totally I, agree but I, for us who've been putting so much time and energy and effort in the last eight nine years into the type of research we've been doing on where we're heading with like the development of artificial intelligence with the development of a planetary computation with the overlapping of these two, with the kind of new jurisdiction and a new sort of like sovereignties that are being being produced now, compounded with a pandemic, mm. you know, and this kind of like this this type of like new sort of like medical capitalism that's rising out of the pandemic that is going to continue on. I yeah. I think I think we're in this like new new phase, and and left has no conception about it has to reorganize its values and objectives and then plan of action is just like it's just in america it just melted itself into this into the centrist and uh, centrist centrist vision basically and in a way you know successfully in england left melted into the center but on like disgracefully <laughs> right so, you know because at least with the sanders movement you still have uh very loud voice of the left and progressives in the Congress and in local mm -hmm. government. And then they budged into them over the budget and infrastructure, at least. Yeah, whereas Maybe in the not UK, so, not so much. Yeah, in the UK, they just decimated the Corbynists and kicked them out of the program. They just kicked Ken Loach out of the uh, Labour Party. <laughs> yeah, we're just going, going, going back to like, quote unquote, new Labour, which no one wanted and uh, yeah. kind of destroyed the Labour Party in some ways, some would yeah, argue. But, but in both cases, in both cases, this new left really was just like uh, re-diverted back into the centrism. Mm. And I even, like, and, and like with this Af Afghanistan thing, man, I don't think Democrats have any chance of like maintaining their House majority or Senate majority. I really think it's grim. And Trump is going to pound on them. And rightfully so. It's This is what politics is. It is so, it is so uh, weird when you open CNN and they're talking about Afghanistan and there's a panel and there's not a single Republican on the panel and they're all like they're all like liberals and they're all like the same people it, it used to be at least there would be like one crazy Republican that would just be like the voice of the opposition you know mm. it's like where, 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 where is the show going you if, you if you can't even accept them as part of the discussion these people would like overthrow your house of cards because it's house of cards anyways it's not really like rationally constructed your your bs is just a li little bit more believable than their bs but it's still bs and they would like puff into your house of cards when it comes 2022 yeah so that's the fear and then yeah man you know i've read that you know some crazy i don't know have you read this or not but some crazy republicans have the plan that like to basically get trump to run in florida for the congress and then get him elected to the house and then get him to be the 
the Speaker of the House and then oh immediately God. moved to impeach Biden. This is like the radical Republican plan, the super radical program. The, wow. the, the moderate Republican plan is like, no, let's not rock the boat that early. We just go for Trump 2024. Well, I mean, so, yeah. it's it's horrifying to think about, but like, I mean, I think we all knew there was a chance that the kind of wise and disgusting uh, vampires of you know neoliberalism would would kind of shit the bed once they got into power and and sow the seeds of a return to not only like Republican rule but probably a, an even more cruel extension of uh, kind of not that I wouldn't yeah. call it the Trump personal project because he's got his own personal project but the let's call them the cruelty caucus of the Republican Party. You know we, we're so lucky we're so lucky in a way that. Uh, Sanders didn't win the nomination of the Democratic Party and he didn't become the president because it would have been such a bigger goddamn mess. Like, really, when I see their naivete and when I see how they acted after the pandemic, how they like, how they disgracefully lost the primaries to centrists with millions of dollars over anyone that Sanders had raised and how they betrayed people who cut money out of their, out of their food. But I mean, it seemed like a, that in that moment, it seemed like it that way. But at the end of it, when you look at what, what Sanders was able to achieve in the, in, the, in the domestic policy and in the budget, you would say, okay, he, he, got, them, he got them a really good deal. He got, mm. But whether, this, whether, this, whether, whether Biden will last to implement some of this, we'll, we'll see. But, but yeah, I just, I, just, I, just, I just can't see President Sanders in this moment, how he would be doing it. I think it's better. We'll, we're lucky because then we would have been banished forever from power if Sanders had to deal with a sort of Delta variant and Afghanistan, imagine. It's better to let the centrists take the blame for this, right? Let them mm, take the blame for this. That's interesting. That's, 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 that is kind of a hopeful spin because, I mean, if, if the kind of... Uh, things would have been much better for President yeah. Sanders, man. It probably would have been even worse. Mm. Well, he would have been, he would have been uh, like going, uh, you know, against the... You know, he would have had a headwind. I mean, I, there, was, there was literally about five minutes where where he looked like he could actually run away with it and you could see a shift in the coverage of like bbc and stuff actually just like starting to write nice articles about him for like five it was literally like one day you know so he would have he would have, he would have gotten like once he maintained power like some of the fucking critics would have shut the fuck up for a bit but he certainly he, there would have been more pushback and yeah it's, it's interesting i mean honestly like the the democratic mainstream of the party um yeah, maybe if maybe if their legitimacy is completely destroyed, I mean, this is the thing though. What what happens when there's four years of of Donald Trump 2.0? I mean, like the amount the amount of damage he could do the second go round, I'm not even sure. Although to be honest, he's so self interested and short sighted in his self interest that you know maybe he can maybe he won't do that much damage. But you know, I think I think I think really the, the discussion here is like which one of the two is is a catalyzer for that multipolar world. Is it going to be Biden or is it going to be Trump, mm. right? You can make an argument that like with the changes that Biden's, Biden's making to American empire, he's really the guy who's going to sort of like bring about the multipolar world, right? It's sort of like po positive, positive scenario, right? Mm. That the multipolar world comes to being. The other one is a negative, multi negative, path towards multipolar, which is Trump comes back to power and then it weakens and fucks up America so much more that then a multipolar world becomes even more inevitable after the second Trump. So, so of course, of course we should hope for the first one. <laughs> mm.
Yeah. Really, because we'll it's, see. It's, it's cleaner, it's better. Yeah, for sure. Because because but, but because if the first one doesn't work, man, it's gonna be the second one. Because like we need to get to that multipolar world. Yeah. You know what else we need, man? You know what else what? we need? Tell me. We really like we need it more than anything else in this world. We need aliens to come <laughs> and like do like a do like a sighting that like three quarter of the people of the world will see them mm. and just send messages and say listen we're watching you you are our experiments we've been you are you're our africa yeah you're our we, we dosed you a few million years ago and now we're just yeah, we're, we're, just, we're like, hoping just that you can get your shit up. together to like stop open, killing yourself open your stop fucking minds yourself. yeah it's all read, a game. Stop Don't killing yourself. Crazy. Read some if fucking that happens, Hegel. Man, everything will fall into place. Like the yeah. minute we encounter aliens, like you don't even need to hear anything from them. Just the fact that any human, even like those like I don't know, like still primitive tribes and Aboriginal people living in places that have not seen blah blah technology, if they see the alien, they know that those people are light years ahead of us in terms of technology and intelligence and and you know. They are not even after our resources because if they're that smart to get here, like they don't need our shit. We're just novelty for them. They want to put, they want to preserve us, man. If they can get from there here, uh, so I really am hoping, man. And I think it's coming. I think it's really like it's a the real intervention that really will make our time, the sci-fi dimension of our time real. Like I mean, I, I'm just like praying for it. <laughs> what an awesome twist and ending. Like, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. We completely reform the entire agenda with the whole be tabula rasa. Yeah, totally. No one would be fucking talking about anything else for a while, you know? But you also, know, yeah, just, exactly. It, as long as we learn to like, as long as like, it would not be clear and obvious that like, the, yeah, they don't want our resources, like, but they can probably go to an asteroid and get whatever the fuck they want, whenever they want. Okay, like we're, we're in a Petri dish. They said, hey, you know what? These apes, if we give them, if we dose them, maybe in a few million years, they'll be there. It'll be interesting to talk to, you know? You know, if you can travel, if you can travel to Earth from like far away, like galaxies, you you can have access to any mineral or any good on any fucking <laughs> yeah. planet. Yeah. Why do you want to come to Earth and fuck with these like dirty animals that still like shit and they still have like snot hanging from their nose well, you like just want to like preserve these little cute animals we yeah. are their french bulldogs man that's my if main that's exist, my main objective that's my if main objective go ahead if they exist and they can come all the way here they're way ahead of us we're there like pets yeah that's why that's my primary objective to scientology because the whole the whole idea in scientology is the aliens came to earth for the gold and it's like no like your aliens don't give a shit about gold they can probably get gold wherever the fuck they want gold. It's just patently obvious that L. Ryan Hubbard made this up just based on that alone, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, you know- If you can make it to Earth, you've passed through all sorts of materials and substances, like gold is nothing. Yeah. I wanted to ask you as well, like you're obviously, um, obviously involved pretty heavily in the art world. I've always found your posts on art and, and the culture around it, the institutions around it, maybe some interrogations of that culture and, institute and those institutions. Um, pretty fascinating. I mean, do you, would you maybe talk a little bit for people, if you don't mind, um, about kind of the current state of art, the current state of curation, um, as you see it, just like writ large, because you're pretty plugged in. It's very grim. Hmm. It's very grim. It's never been this grim. And it's like, 
elephant in the room. Nobody wants to talk about how grim it is. So, you know, the art world party, which kind of began with the beginning of the stock market rally in the early 80s, you know, that peak stock market rally in the mm -hmm. beginning of early, that then yeah. crashed in 87. Yeah. Which was the first big uh, Wall Street crash that they made movie Wall Street and all that about it. Yeah. And that around this time, people were investing really heavily in art, right? Art has been on a just a up, just the uptrend. So from the beginning of that, that sort of like boom, the early 80s boom, art has always been up. And really and that's destroyed it can, basically you can see pandemic as like the as like the event that just kind of like destroyed it in a way mm, but mm. it wasn't you can't really blame it all on pandemic but like it just came crushing down at the pandemic the time of the pandemic so what's happening now in the in the world what's happening in my opinion right now in the world of art and culture is that uh private interest in art has dwindled and art is kind of concentrating into like very top-notch historical artists and people with like people who already had their museum shows and all that and their work is going to get majority of the market galleries are consolidating all small and medium-sized galleries are closing the large galleries are also like coming together and forming larger entities you know the head of the art freeze the head of the america art freeze just quit art freeze and joined sotheby which is a which is a, a auction house, right? Which is a secondary market thing, more conservative. So yeah, so I think the, the category of contemporary art is in, a, is in a crisis that it has never imagined will happen because we always thought that the contemporary art party will keep, keep going on forever because capitalism and neoliberalism always need new faces and younger artists and, this, and wants to hype all this, at least like 1% of anything that comes out of this will get hyped and they get rich and they go to parties and there's all these openings and all these, free free expensive booze and there's always like this like uh dinner parties for the artists and the party will go on and the prices keep going up going higher it's always been like that even through like the 2008 crisis art held its prices and actually people moved money to the art to secure their investments and but really the, the rot at the core of art is philosophical it was a debacle sort of like reached with at the height of like post-structuralism and the sort of like exploration of different aspects of post-structuralist worldview that had kind of like reached at the bottom of the pot. And really there was nothing, there was no new set of new set of ideas being, the biggest problem with the art was already beginning to be in 2000, the big, began to appear in 2013, 2014 as a, as a sort of philosophical crisis of contemporary art. That we were sort of like people who started to talk about it and, and propose it. But the market held until the pandemic. And when the market's there, the market's even interested in your stories of its demise. Ha, 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 I pay you to come tell me that I'm dying. Right. Oh, there's a competition for these guys who are going to come tell us that we're, we're actually like have a big problem. Mm. You know, but well, well, we pay them to tell us that we have a big philosophical problem. It was like that because we were warning, we were calling the warning shots. And then what happened was all the important discussions that really needed to be discussed was sort of relegated to the side and then all of a sudden, we had to deal with uh, we had to deal with Trump and rise of nationalism and 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 Brexit, which were these shocks, aftershocks of twentieth century. You know, you know things like EU and things like 
this new liberal world order in America, et cetera, were just like part of the ambient now. They were part of accepted facts. All of a sudden, things that we were taking for granted in, through, throughout the 90s and 2000s, even through the war on terror, we had taken them for granted. All of a sudden, all came unraveling. You know, particularly Brexit, rise of the nationalism in Europe as a result of the refugee crisis, uh, Syria, all that, and then the election of Trump. And the art world went into this, like what we saw as the, what we, the problem we identified as a, as a problem of contemporary art was that it had become too vague and too uh, indeterminate. We actually called it the problem of indeterminacy in mm. contemporary art. Well, that anyone could interpret what they want out of it. And it had become so watered down that it was all, the art was completed with the view of the audience and the art wasn't completed until the viewer decided what it means to them and blah, blah, blah. This was a problem we were identifying as a problem in the art. The, the new political earthquake that I just brought to your attention, sort of like we went from one extreme to the next. So what happened was art sort of like saw an opportunity to kind of like return to the political and social stuff, kind of like a retro 1990s in the art because the question of identity and feminist art practices, queer art practices, all of this was already happening in the 80s. And which became kind of institutionalized in the 90s, right? Out of the AIDS crisis and out of the feminist struggle in the US. So it was sort of like a, it was like a ready-made almost this time around. It was already there. It was just like a Duchampian ready-made. It was just like, okay, we got all this stuff. We're gonna to return to all this. I'm 